Welcome back to Conversations, Season 4 of our podcast, The Past, The Promise, The Presidency. I'm Brian Franklin, and I'm joined by my co-hosts this season, SMU students Tyler McCall and Tamal Pilla. This is Episode 6, Petroleum and Progress in Iran. And we're having a conversation about oil, Iran, and U.S. foreign affairs in the 20th century. This conversation is especially relevant to us on at least two fronts. First, when are the topics of oil, Iran, and the U.S. and international diplomacy not in the news? The answer is never. They're always in the news, and that's been especially true of late. Second, and admittedly closer to home, we're talking with our friend Dr. Gregory Brew. After earning his Ph.D. in history from Georgetown University, Gregory Brew spent two years with us in Dallas as a postdoctoral fellow in the SMU Center for Presidential History. He went on to a visiting fellowship at Yale University and is now an analyst with Eurasia Group, their country analyst for Iran, and working on their energy, climate, and resources team, focused on the geopolitics of oil and gas. Along the way, he has published not one but two books on the history of modern Iran, written numerous pieces of analysis and commentary, and has made regular media appearances to discuss energy and geopolitics everywhere from NPR to the BBC World Service. In other words, we can't imagine anyone better than Dr. Brew to have a conversation with about oil, Iran, and the U.S. in the 20th century. I'll turn it over now to Tamal Pilla for this week's conversation. Hello, my name is Tamal Pilla with the Center for Presidential History at SMU, joined today by Dr. Gregory Brew, a historian of oil, U.S. foreign relations, and the modern Middle East and Iran at Yale University. Now, Dr. Brew will be joining us at SMU on March 29th to discuss his new book, Petroleum and Progress in Iran, Oil Development and the Cold War. Dr. Brew, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Now, in your book, Dr. Brew, you describe a sort of petro state, essentially a state whose revenue is mainly derived from oil, which is used to support an industrializing economy and sort of growing middle class. How did the U.S. government, particularly the executive branch, contribute to the formation of this petro state in Iran? How did it affect our foreign affairs policy? That's a great question. And I think before answering it directly, I'll emphasize that you know, the book explores U.S.-Iranian relations in the post-war period, particularly the 50s and 60s. And unlike current U.S.-Iranian relations, which, of course, are fraught with confrontation and suspicion, relations between the United States and Iran in the immediate post-war period were quite friendly, quite amicable. The Shah of Iran was considered to be a U.S. friend, a valuable partner in the Cold War. But just as it is today, Iran was viewed by the United States as a country of unique strategic significance. It bordered the Soviet Union. It shared a 1,500-mile-long border with the Soviet Union. So its geographic position was quite important. And of course, Iran was, in the post-war period, as it is today, a major oil producer. Not only did it produce a great deal of oil, but Iran was also strategically located close to the oil fields of Kuwait, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. So retaining Iran as a partner in the Cold War was important to the United States, not only in the containment of the Soviet Union, but also in the protection 
of Middle East oil and in the broader U.S. objective of maintaining access to that oil, not only for U.S. consumption, but for consumption by the broader and Western economies. So Iran was an important country in the 50s and 60s. It was a country in which the United States took a particular interest. And from a U.S. point of view, Iran appeared to be a country not only of particular importance, but of particular vulnerability. It was viewed as a country teetering on the brink of collapse. It was perceived, this is again, this is the United States perception, this is the perception of American officials. It was perceived to be a country racked by internal divisions, a backwards economy, a political elite that seemed to lack the necessary administrative and political acumen to manage their country in the face of Soviet pressure. So the United States was very concerned about the potential loss of Iran to communism. They were consumed with something that in the book I refer to as the collapse narrative, this story of Iran succumbing to these problems and collapsing into chaos and eventual communist rule. And oil, from the point of view of the United States, appeared to provide an answer to this question. The idea that if Iran could stabilize its oil production, provide a stable flow of oil to the West, that this would in turn allow Iran to access a stable flow of revenues from the sale of oil, that this flow of wealth emerging from the sale of oil on the Western market would allow Iran to address its economic problems, would allow the political class led by the Shah to stabilize Iran, stabilize its internal political situation, and in turn, preserving the country from communist pressure. So that was kind of the big picture view that the United States had of Iran in this era. So to answer your question specifically, what did the United States do to encourage the development of a petrostate in Iran? The short answer is quite a lot. The United States was interested in seeing Iran develop its oil resources. It was interested in seeing Iran sell oil to the West, not only to meet Western demand, but also to address this problem of Iran's internal instability. So the creation of the Iranian petrostate was, in a sense, the result of specific policies undertaken by the United States, the most significant of which was the famous coup of August of 1953, a coup d'etat that was planned, funded, and orchestrated by the CIA and British intelligence that overthrew the government of Iran's Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh and replaced it with a government led by the Shah. I argue in the book that this decision to launch this coup was directly inspired by the U.S. concern over not only the flow of Iranian oil, but the flow of oil revenues to the Iranian state. Now, Dr. Brew, you talked a lot there about Soviet pressure. How could this book or how should this book inform a new perception of the Cold War and, and really its study? Another excellent question. From my point of view, it's important to consider the Cold War not only as a bilateral competition, if you like. Not only was it a competition between the United States and the Soviet Union, the Cold War was really a global struggle that was fought not only in Europe or in divided Germany, but across the entirety of Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East. The so-called Global South was an important venue, an important area of Cold War competition. But the Cold War itself was really a series, a group of conflicts and struggles that changed depending on which uh, national milieu you chose to focus on. So a major takeaway from my book that I try to, uh, try to emphasize is that the Cold War in Iran took on a variety of local 
aspects. That not only was this a global struggle pitting the United States and the Soviet Union against one another, but that the Cold War had its own sort of separate, unique Iranian dimension. That's one uh, lesson that I would try to impart. The second would be that the Cold War was not just a struggle between states, that the Cold War was also a struggle that incorporated non-state actors. And the non-state actors that I emphasize in the book are major Western oil corporations, companies that today are known as ExxonMobil and BP and Chevron, but which all had different names in the 50s and 60s. Still the same companies, though. I emphasize the important role that these companies played in the management and the flow of Iranian oil and the management and flow of the Iranian oil revenues that I emphasize. Another group of non-state actors that I emphasize in the book are American NGOs, non-governmental organizations that focused on the issues of economic development. It was a U.S. interest that Iran should enjoy a stream of oil wealth, but it was the NGOs who went to Iran to figure out how to apply that wealth. They were coming to Iran from a very similar perspective. They saw Iran as a troubled country, an unstable country, led by a relatively weak government beset by internal and external pressures. And these NGOs focused on the issue of economic development, and specifically oil-driven economic development, as a way to guide Iran along the path towards modernization, development, and eventual stability. And some of the NGOs that are discussed in the book are the Ford Foundation. I have a chapter devoted to the World Bank, which is sort of a special non-state actor in this story. I spent a lot of time discussing the work of David Lilienthal, who was a famous American developmentalist. He was very active with the Tennessee Valley Authority during the 1930s. In the 1950s, he goes to Iran and tries to recreate the TVA in Iran. He has this grand vision of building dams and irrigating Iranian deserts, creating this sort of new lush agrarian society that links Iran's oil industry with its sort of agrarian underclass. He's not entirely successful for reasons that the book explores. But this is an element of the Cold War that I really tried to emphasize, that this struggle that the United States is looking at from a very macro point of view has a particular local dimension in Iran that engages not only state, but also non-state actors. There you mentioned at least two lessons that we can take from your book. How do we apply those two and, and even more from your book to a modern world context? In other words, what does this mean for today's Iranian petrostate and sort of in turn with the theme of the Center for Presidential History study, the American executive branch and its policy? Well, something that is emphasized in the book is that this is, I mean, this is largely a story of the executive branch, forming policy, reaching out to the Iranian government. I mean, Congress doesn't play a huge role in this story. It's mostly a story focused on the State Department, the CIA, and the particular engineers of U.S. foreign policy. And many of those engineers, uh, you know, are still sort of institutionally in place today. When we talk about U.S.-Iranian relations, we often talk about specific presidents and the policies that they're trying to pursue. However, something that I would emphasize is that today, domestic politics plays a very important part in U.S.-Iranian relations, not only in the United States. We're quite used to hearing stories about how Iran is a dangerous country, how it threatens U.S. interests, how it needs to be pressured, how it needs to be sanctioned. We hear these points of view not only from U.S. presidents or U.S. officials, but very frequently from members of Congress. You know, Congress is very interested in U.S. policy towards Iran. It's also an element of the Iranian discourse around the U.S.-Iranian relationship. There are many Iranians, Iranian officials, politicians, political interests, who are interested in maintaining the current confrontational stance between the United States 
and Iran. A lesson, or I guess a, a point from my book that readers can appreciate, is that the United States and Iran once had quite amicable relations. They were once friends, but amicability did not overcome essential differences in interests. Even when the Shah was a friend of the United States, even when Iran's government was, you know, Western-looking, secular, Iran still had particular national interests that did not align with what the United States wanted, that did not align with what U.S. companies or NGOs wanted, that the Iranian state had agency. So one lesson I think I would emphasize for readers taking uh, look, reading this book about you know an era that's 60 or 70 years past and trying to make connections for the present day is that while the United States is a very powerful country, while the United States wields a great deal of power over Iran in this bilateral relationship, Iran itself also has agency. That when we talk about the future of U.S.-Iranian relations or the future of Iran, that that is a question that will have to mostly be answered by Iranians, Iranian leaders, and the Iranian people. And that's a development over which the United States can have relatively little say. And that, that is a lesson that comes out of the book. A primary theme of the book is the United States attempting to exert its influence over Iran and Iranians finding ways to redirect or reshape that interest, that influence to serve their own interests. So it's a feature of the bilateral relationship that was in place then that still has echoes in the U.S.-Iranian confrontation today. And finally, I would also say, you know, Iran, the Iranian petrostate grew from the 1950s and 60s. It was certainly in place by the 1970s. Today, Iran is still quite dependent on oil exports. But as a result of pressure from U.S. sanctions that have been in place over the last uh, decade or so, Iran has had to increasingly move away from a dependence on oil for the sake of national security and for the sake of national preservation. It's had to develop its non-oil economy in order to survive a world of U.S. sanctions. So in a way, if the United States was there at the inception of the Iranian petrostate, it is to a certain extent U.S. action that is bringing the Iranian petrostate to an end. Now, Dr. Baru, just there you mentioned sort of an underlying theme of the book, America exerting influence over Iran. Could you speak more to that? What is the main takeaway from this book? And is it that? I wouldn't say that it's one of the main takeaways. I would argue that the U.S. has a role in the creation of the Iranian petrostate that is born from the 1950s and 60s. But a major theme of the book is the Iranian state and the state of the Iranian Shah, the leader of Iran in the, the 50s and 60s, playing a more central role, really, in the creation of the Iranian petrostate for reasons that were particular to the political interests of the Shah and of his government. The book explores the U.S.-Iranian relationship from both an Iranian and an American point of view. And what it finds is a great deal of friction between the U.S. and Iran in an era that we often look upon as an era of relative friendliness and amicability. So I think the more important takeaway that I would emphasize is that when looking at bilateral relations in the Cold War or even today between the United States and, you know, let's say, smaller countries, not only in Europe, but also in the global south or, or Asia or the Middle East or Latin America, that it's very important to emphasize the agency of those countries in this relationship. It's not just the United States shaping the world. It's the United States engaging with other states, often attempting 
to shape those states, but frequently encountering pushback, frequently having to alter or change expectations or objectives, and in many instances, being changed itself by those relationships, by those connections. There are ways that the engagement with Iran in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s changed the United States and changed U.S. policy in a way that U.S. officials didn't fully anticipate. Well, Dr. Brew, thank you for joining me today. I look forward to seeing you again at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, March 29th in McCord Auditorium on SMU's campus. Thank you again. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Past, The Promise, The Presidency. If you want to learn more after this conversation, we encourage you to do two things. First, go buy Dr. Brew's book, Petroleum and Progress in Iran, Oil Development and the Cold War, published by Cambridge University Press. And second, come see Dr. Brew speak about his book at SMU on Wednesday, March 29th at 6 p.m. After Dr. Brew's presentation, we will also post a recording on the website at www.smu.edu cph. The Past, the Promise, the Presidency is a production of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Our thanks to SMU's Dedman College of Humanities and Sciences and the Office of the Provost for their support. Thank you to Pro Podcast Solutions and to our CPH team, especially Tamal Pilla and Tyler McCall for producing this episode, whose original theme music was composed by Marshall Engel. For show notes, more information on the expert guests featured in our conversations, and more about all our past seasons, visit pastpromisepresidency.com. We hope you'll join us again next week for our next conversation.